This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Hey, this is Jason Elam. Join Lola Robbins, Kyle Butler, and me for the Messy Spirituality Podcast, where we try to empower your spiritual evolution with honest conversation about how to be a better human, taking a critical look at toxic Bible stories, and look behind the headlines for growth opportunities underlying current events. Hey, it's a bisexual hairstylist who escaped a cult, a black mystic, and a recovering Southern Baptist preacher. What could possibly go wrong? Check out the Messy Spirituality Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. My name is Nat Turney. I'm with my brother as always, John Turney. Say hi, John. Hi, John. There he is. He's nestled up there in the uh, in the in the mountains of Northern California, currently sipping what I hope is bourbon, but who knows? Could be any sort of. <laughs> he's got a mouthful. He's just nodding at me. Actually, it's a single. It's a it's a single malt. Sorry. Oh wow, wow, fancy. Um, I have to uh, I have to just drink my uh, my water here. But we uh, we we're back with the podcast. This is not church. Uh, we have unchurchy conversations about church with all kinds of interesting people, and today is no different. Uh, today, we welcome to the program Kelly Nikondeha. She has written an amazing book. Uh, she just gave me the nod of approval that I might have gotten close to pronouncing her name. So uh, I'm going to go with that. Um, so this book, uh, which will be released, actually, by the time this uh, this podcast is, is, is available, this book will be available. I believe it comes out October 4th. And this is called The First Advent in Palestine. And so uh, if I can... Zoom in on the uh, the subtitle, Re- Reversals, Resistance, and the Ongoing Complexity of Hope. So let me read you a really quick bio, and then we're just going to jump headlong into a conversation with Kelly. Uh, Kelly Nickendeha is a writer, liberation theo- theologian, and community development practitioner. She combines biblical texts in various cultural contexts to discover insights for embodied justice, community engagement, and living faith. She is the author of Defiant, what the women of Exodus teach us about freedom and adopted the sacrament of belonging in a fractured world and is known for highlighting Palestinian voices and rights. She travels between the Southwest US and Burundi in East Africa. And now that I've stumbled my way all the way through that, welcome to the podcast, Kelly. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Glad to see you both and be here in conversation with you. We're glad you're here. If you could, if you don't mind, our typical sort of jumping off questions for question for folks is that they uh, kind of give us a, a background in their like their faith journey kind of what what kind of stuff they've gone through is that that's good for you sure uh, well I am a California girl born and raised in Orange County so the kind of the heart of um, Southern California I was born into the Catholic Church and uh, maybe when we hit my junior, kind of my junior high years, my parents uh, made their exodus from Catholicism into uh, evangelicalism. And so I spent many, many years, uh, I'd say all the way into my early adulthood in evangelical spaces, um, and then dipped into uh, some pretty heavy charismatic spaces with uh, the Vineyard, uh, right about the time that the Vineyard blessing up in Toronto was happening, the Toronto blessing was happening up uh, in Canada. Uh, so that is part of my experience. Uh, but in the last set of years, I've returned to my mother church, uh, which is a phrase uh, that was gifted to us by Phyllis Tickle. And the moment she said it, it explained my coming home uh, to the Catholic church. Um, and so I would say now in terms of just religious identity, I'm, I'm back um, with my Catholic brothers and sisters. Um, although I have, you know, I'm ecclesiastically promiscuous. I have worked in Methodist spaces and love the connectionality of the Methodist church. And I uh, still have, you know, I'm still kind of evangelical adjacent, even though um, I'm not part of that tribe. I still understand and have many uh, deep friendships in that space. Uh, so, but I, but I feel comfortable, you know, talking about faith with my friends all over the spectrum. But I, I have Jewish friends and Messianic friends and Muslim friends, and I uh, love being in conversation with them as well. So, uh, my journey uh, is 
that that's a, a snapshot anyways. Yeah, for sure. I, I While you were talking, I wrote down in my notes on my phone, ecclesiastically promiscuous. Um, <laughs> because yeah, I love that phrase. And I think that describes me to a T. Um, I love that. Uh, we might call that ecumenical, but I like your, <laughs> I like your phrase better. I like that better. And because I, I don't know about John, I, John's journey has been a little bit disjointed and different. So he, he took a, a large chunk of, I don't know, he took decades off from the church. My, my dalliance with ecumenicalism actually began when I was past, I was working for a very, very evangelical pastor who insisted that I go on a, a spiritual retreat called the Walk to Emmaus. And oh, sure. it was, you know, so, and it's not like this everywhere, um, just like everything else, there's variations of this, but the, in the community where we live in Texas, it's a very ecumenical group of people. Um, the Methodist Church sort of owns and runs that program, but it's held at a Catholic retreat center. Um, it's attended by Catholics and Protestants alike from every, you know, every conceivable stripe. And so because of that, it has to be very, very aware of other faith traditions and, and walk a little gently. So it was interesting that his insistence that I do this was my exit out of that world of his. Cause I was like, wait a minute, this whole Christian experience is, is wider than I thought and deeper than I thought. And there's all kinds of stuff that I'd been told was, was not correct or whatever. And I, and I, anyway, so he, it was his undoing <laughs> to, to send me on this retreat. So yeah, uh, ecclesi- ecclesiastically promiscuous is, is where I, I, yeah, I think that describes me to a T. In your bio, it says that you, uh, you, you split time then between the South, the Southwest U.S., like, I guess, Arizona and Burundi. How that, that sounds like a, like an interesting story. How did, how does, how does that come about? I have been connected to Burundi through marriage uh, to my husband, who was born and raised in uh, Burundi. Uh, grew up in what we would call uh, extreme poverty. You know, the less than a dollar a day uh, that we used to always use that description. But my husband grew up in that kind of poverty, uh, and when we met um, in the states, uh, we had a a four-year friendship. And at some point, you know, it's like, well, gee whiz, you're not with anybody and I'm not with anybody. And we, we kind of are heading the same direction in life, we thought. Uh, so we ended up getting married. Uh, so now I am, you know, I live in between both places. And then we adopted two uh, Burundian babies uh, who are both now almost 19. <laughs> wow. Okay. So I, my family really... You know, yeah. I'm an only child, so it's me and my parents. But the largest part of my family, you know, all the aunts and uncles and the ones that are in the city and the ones that are up country and the ones every, I find a new branch every time I go back, you know, it's, they're all Burundians. And so that is my connection to East Africa. That is awesome. So let me ask you this then, maybe, and I hope it's not too pedantic of a question, but then how, how does that connection to that part of the world then inform your, your scholarship? Or how does it kind of lead you down? Does it? Does it? I guess I shouldn't. I shouldn't assume that it does. I, I assume it does. But well, I, it has shaped me as the person, right? Who would then be, you know, the learner and and changed my perspective. I, as I said, I grew up in in Southern California. I grew up in a pretty affluent family, um, a, a white Christian family, uh, and I saw the world in a very specific way. And it was in, in marriage to uh, my husband that I, you know, there were no, we couldn't assume anything, right, about our families being the same or our church experience be the same or our understanding of government or citizenship. We couldn't assume that any of that. So we had to talk through everything. But in the process, it was the greatest lesson for me um, about how different countries work, how different um, communities work. I mean, obviously I started to recognize how, well, the, I, I started to see some of the s- systemic racism in my own country as my husband would experience it here and name it so that I could see and understand it. Um, I started to see the difference between a, a very individualistic society and his being so deeply communal. You know, he, his country was just coming out of three or four decades of civil war when we first moved there. And being part of a society that was coming out of civil war and seeing what it is to be a survival society 
the ways in which that the, the trauma, the very recent trauma, shaped uh, the culture. And uh, I mean, these things just started to reshape, and and was probably a huge part of how I ended up be, becoming more of a liberation theologian um, is recognizing that salvation had to be more than just souls. It had to be more than just that. Uh, it had to be more inclusive. Uh, it had to be good news to to the people around me. And good news actually did have to do with indebtedness and land and safety and food security. And so, yes, my connection to East Africa and, and my husband was has been such a great translator of culture and such a gift to me. Yeah, absolutely has changed the way that I see and understand the world and the text. Yeah, so when you when you go to write this book about uh, the first advent, and you obviously are, you're looking you're looking at this from a from a Palestinian perspective, then does that does some of that history of Burundi being, as you say, a, a a trauma culture? Do you see parallels then between that and say the Jewish people who I see in in very similar ways having having dealt with multiple traumas through their history? And at the time of the first advent, still very much feeling the, the scars of even the Babylonian exile and having obviously living still under Roman occupation and all of the other things that sort of disenfranchised them. Well, you have just summarized the first chapter. Where I was going with this. Uh, yes, I think that was one of the one of the first surprises as I really started to lean into the advent texts which were given to us by Luke and Matthew, uh, is the presence of trauma. And of course, now that we more people are doing trauma-informed theology and exegesis, uh, you know, it, it's like I started to see, oh, you know, there was, there was trauma in the text. And, and when I went all the way back to Maccabees, you know, of course, I, I love Isaiah. And so, the, Bab- the Babylonian exile and the ex- uh, lamentations as the grief work of the of the Hebrew Bible, and I mean, this is stuff that I already uh, deep has deeply shaped my theology. But seeing it in the intertestamental period with the Maccabees and seeing that as kind of the predicate to the first advent, uh, and recognizing that in the in the the very bodies. Of, of Jesus's human ancestors would be generational trauma, um, but also very recent trauma, because of course, we're going to, you know, in, in pretty quick order, see the trauma that surrounded Mary and Joseph and Zachariah and Elizabeth and, and that Jesus as an infant would, uh, would experience and have in, in his human body. And so in the, in the body of God, we have this deep awareness of an experience of trauma, which really changed my understanding of incarnation. But in any event, uh, yes, that, you know, that, that, and then I have, as I said, Palestinian friends in particular who uh, you can't be with them in the region and not see and, and hear uh, the echoes of trauma that they experience daily. And so I think the combination of what was happening in the text, but what was happening with my friends in the West Bank, it was, inevitable, I think, that I would finally see those layers of trauma and how that impinged on uh, the Advent stories and, and on yeah. our understanding of incarnation. Well, and then, you know, in, in Western culture, um, the Advent has been romanticized and nostalgized. Can you say that? Is that a word? But, you know, we just, we have this picture of, we have this picture of Advent as, I think, something utterly, <laughs> completely different than it really was because we've just incorporated it into our mythologies. So when you talk about incarnation, one of the, I'm flipping through your page on Amazon and we don't like to give Amazon too many, too many props, but let's face it, that's how people buy books a lot of the time. So, but I'm flipping through some of the, um, some of the endorsements. And obviously besides the amazing, there was one by Peter uh, Heltzel that I, I don't recognize the name, but I don't know if there's any any higher praise than he gives you on this. Then he says, after On the Incarnation by Athanasius, the first advent in Palestine by Kelly Nikandeha is the best book I've read on the Incarnation, on the incarnation Peace and Hope. Holy mackerel. I, I mean... I, I was... You're I was the same breath as Athanasius? <laughs> <laughs> or, or as my friend would say, Athanasius? Um, that's... 
Because the first place where I got any real and and my first my first introduction to to on the incarnation was through uh, Dr. Baxter Kruger, who referenced it a great deal in one of his books. Um, so of course I had to run out and grab it and buy it and and being raised um, pretty much Western evangelical my whole life, we don't talk about the church fathers. <laughs> For us, the church history begins at the Reformation, um, and we give a passing nod to some of the some of the ancients, but. So I, after reading on the incarnation and after hearing you just explain what you were talking about with trauma, it reminds me of that part of Athanasius that says, you know, anyway, those things that aren't fully experienced by God can't be healed. And exactly. I'm, it's not the right word to use. He, the, the quote is different. Mm-hmm. But so much of our understanding of, of incarnation, I think, is a superficial understanding of, okay, well, God became human. Okay, but what does that mean to fully become human? And to full, oh, that's which, that, that which is not assumed cannot be healed. So when God assumes human flesh, even to the point of assuming the generational trauma that you that exactly. you spoke of, even exactly. to the point of being born into a family that was already dysfunctional in a way simply because of the generations of trauma they'd experienced and that they would inevitably pass on to their son. That to me is a much more compelling story than born in a barn surrounded by, you know, cute animals. <laughs> right. right. Well, and, and, that the, and, and that that now resides in the eternal body of God. Right. You know, this deep, ex- that, that experience that Jesus lived now is part of that eternal yeah, body or memory of God. And, and I'm utterly convinced that the God who has experienced that trauma and experience some of the other things we're going to hear about the economic exploitation, the, the stigma, the, the shame that the God who has experienced that, um, is the God who will know how to heal it and will be committed, uh, to healing it, even though it is not on a timetable, but it gives, I finished this work and felt greatly confident that there is no way that the God who has that in, in God's self would ever then not know how to bring it to even though I may not yeah. ever see it. Well, then even the, the very the very instrument of his wounding will be the thing which heals, which I just think, I just, I love that circuit, you know, that the way that that comes around. Athanasius points that out in a couple different places, but so, so all of that, all of that is not lost. It actually becomes the vehicle by which, you know, healing comes and through whatever, whatever salvation means, it's the, it comes through that suffering. I'm not sure if you're aware of, of Mercy Aiken, do you know Mercy at all? We no, I don't. You guys connected. Okay, so Mercy is a she's an amazing uh, woman, but she uh, she she splits time between Bethlehem and the states, and has done a lot of work with with uh, Palestinian Christians and Muslims and Jews, um, mm-hmm. but trying to find trying to walk those spaces. But she actually co wrote a book about Advent in Bethlehem, and I need I'm looking for it right now, trying oh. to find the name of the of the book. Oh, it's called um, Yet in the Dark Streets, Shining: A Palestinian Story of Hope and Resilience in Bethlehem. Mm. And I, th- I feel like you guys would find some pretty cool common ground. Probably. I, you know, I was hoping to write this book. I was, I was supposed to spend three months in Bethlehem. Yeah. And I was going to write the bulk of this book from a very specific little inn on the top of Star Street. And then COVID hit. Yeah. And it was, it was one of those things that as much as I love this book, there's a part of me that feels like there's this ache for that that part that would have only come from writing it in that actual yeah. space that so, I'll just never fully know. <laughs> or you'll, or you'll write an updated version sure. and, and include, uh, an, yeah, a chapter from, I don't know. That's, that's what happened to Mercy as well. She got, she, she actually kind of ended up coming back to the States for longer than she intended to because of COVID and she couldn't get back, but she's working with some people there in Bethlehem and, I don't know. It's, it's, I just, I just immediately thought that you guys would would probably really hit it off and have some 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 common ground. But anyway, that's an aside. I, I just want to back up a little bit and and talk about this this acknowledgement of the apocrypha that a lot of us in, within the Western Evangelical Church, first of all, maybe don't even know, right? That don't even know it exists. I I didn't, you know, to be fully honest, the first eighteen twenty years of my existence didn't even know it existed. And if it did, if I did have any inclination of it, it was well, you know, it's, a, it's the Catholics have that, and we know what we think about the Catholics, right? So, uh, so it, it can't be, it can't be, it can't be holy writings. It can't be any of that. But I like how you how you acknowledge this four hundred year gap that, like, my Bible has, right? This four hundred years of silence that the Maccabees and the other books within the Apocrypha talk about, and 
it brings a whole nether level of trauma, right? And a whole nether level of um, exile um, and redemption. But then this redemption is very short-lived. And it's just this idea of this generational trauma. And I think the Western Evangelical Church, and Nat can correct me if he, or either one of you can correct me if you think I'm wrong on this, but we only want to talk about the Advent around Christmas, right? So the church does this really weird balancing act. They don't, they don't go through the history towards the advent. They, they bounce around, right? And so it's never this, we go from this book to this book within a, you know, like an order that shows this trauma within to the advent. We, we would rather just forget all this and just jump into the advent for our Christmas season. And then I'll we do you did one better, it. John. I'll, I'll, I'll push back only on, only in this and say that in, in the Western evangelical churches I grew up in, I never heard the word Advent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. Unless yeah. it was related to a calendar. And so as a kid, I thought Advent was a kind of chocolate. That you got out of it. <laughs> and it was usually bad, stale, bad, just, right. Ooh, I mean, some of the Advent chocolate, man. Oh, I don't like that stuff. I, I prefer dark chocolate. So, um, <laughs> that a church would even have, you know, and, and our more mainline, Protestant denominations obviously do. Um, mm-hmm. But that was one of the things that, that when we, I planted a church about three years ago now. And one of the things that we did, because we, you know, September we planted by, by, by November, we're like, we're doing this Advent thing. You know, we're not going to jump straight into Christmas without these weeks of, of expectation and this anticipation that comes along with with, uh, with all of that. And rather than getting sucked up into the commercialization of Christmas, we want to actually go through the process, mm-hmm. you know, of, of going through the week, you know, the, the week of peace and hope and love and joy um, that is leading up to Christmas, Christmas Day. And then obviously our, you know, <laughs> we're so, we're so Protestant, John, we didn't even know what the 12 days of Christmas were, man. Well, right. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Because as far as I was concerned, Christmas ended on December 26th. It was over and there was all these other, you know, so within, you know, more orthodox forms of Christianity, there's this other stuff going on. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, John's right. We didn't, you know, I, I got into a, not an, I won't say an argument, but um, a conversation with my son and his wife this weekend. And they were, there were certain things that they were pushing back on. And one of the, you know, silly things like, oh, I, I won't go to a Catholic church because they just have these big crucifixes on the, you know, and I think that's weird. I'm like, I think it's weird to not talk about the crucifixion. I'm pretty sure that Paul said, he, he resolved to only preach Christ and him crucified. So to take away that image of a crucified God seems to be a whitewashing of our history. But Right. Well, we certainly want to take a, we certainly want to remove, at least I have found in evangelical spaces, there was a, a sanitation. Yeah, right? for sure. So we, don't, we don't want to talk about somebody who was killed as a terrorist and the mechanism of the death. We don't want to talk right. about, we don't want to talk about the politics and the economics and all that stuff. No, no. We don't want, you know, and especially like you said, we come into Advent and there's an expectation that it's going to be a magical, uh, hope-filled time, that there's going to be anticipation and twinkle lights and pumpkin spice things. And, you know, and, um, and, and that so is not what we get from Luke and no. um, Matthew. And of course, as I said, Maccabees, which brings us from the intertestamental period, you know, which was loud with suffering. I mean, the only person who had the prerogative to be silent in those 400 years was God because the, everybody else was roiled in, in battles and loss and land confiscation and, um, you know, were under economic duress. I mean, nobody else was quiet. Um, and, and so it was loud with loss and lament. And then, as I said, that's the predicate for uh, what we're going to find uh, with the Holy Family and, and that story. But it's critical. I think, you know, Luke and Matthew wanted us to see these things. They would have expected that we would have understood this world uh, where God decided to, when God decided to arrive, you know, like feet on the ground um, in the middle of, oh, the Pax Romana. Ooh. If there, was, if there was already world peace, why was that the time that God decided uh, yeah. to set on the earth? I think that, you know, that was another fascinating exploration is why then, you know, Caesar, Caesar was already the savior of the world. That's what they right. were calling him. Right. And having, a, having talked to uh, Dom Crossan, like we, we spoke mm-hmm. about earlier when he, in his book, he goes into great depth, right? About this, this, uh, 
um, the illusion of the Pax Romana and how yes. it was already crumbling at the time that Jesus shows up, but they were still um, they were still clinging to this hope that that this this peace could endure um, even at the tip of a sword or always at the tip of a sword. Always. And so I like that he brings that contrast into the to the peace that Christ offers and that the peace that Caesar wants to thrust upon the world, you know, versus this peace that actually comes from from economic and, and political justice. So yeah, there's, but there's, you know, when we, when we get into the story of Jesus in the Western, again, I, I, I critique my own tradition because I feel like I'm, I have the most right to critique my own tradition. That's been my experience is, is we've reduced what happens to Jesus on the cross to a sacrificial act that had to be done. Praise God, it had to happen that way. So then we can sanitize the pure evil of it, which was the collaboration of church and state to sponsor the execution of a terrorist or someone they, they needed to get rid of. And so I think for too many people, that just hits a little too close to home sometimes with what we see in our own world. We'd rather not, we'd rather not frame it in those terms, right? It's a little easier in the abstract to say, well, no, it's, it's, it, this, this had to happen this way so that Jesus could be the, the, the sacrifice we needed him to be. But in this, in this Advent story, then, so we go from this place of, of trauma so out of out of this, our you know Jesus's family is is formed in in the midst of all of this. Where does that lead us then, as as the story sort of unfolds? As I said, we start with I think an understanding of trauma, and I'm so grateful actually for our Catholic brothers and sisters that have preserved uh, the apocrypha in the actual in. The, I mean, that's how I found it. It was in the Jerusalem Bible that my mom had. She may have left. Catholicism, but she still had the old Bible on the shelf, and that's where I first found it. <laughs> like, what are these books? I'm <laughs> so, so grateful they, that there were some breadcrumbs there, and I'm, you know, so I'm. This is where the beauty, the beauty of a of a ecumenical understanding of church, where we, you know, are. Anyways, that was saved for us so that I we could find it, um, but that trauma is going to affect politics and military action and economic exploitation. And all of those forces are felt in these Advent narratives. Of course, we, you know, we're going to hear from Matthew. Or wait, no, no, no. We're going to hear from Luke that it was a Caesar census, right? You had right. to go and register for the census. And it was said, I think, three or four times in a matter of verses, register for the census, you know. And I think I always heard that as, you know, like going to the DMV and up updating your, you know, driver's license address. Like it was some kind of benign thing you had to do as a member of this society. Um, and I had completely missed until I, I came back and started exploring more deeply that, Oh, no, no. The only time that Caesar would have had this kind of a movement, and of course, historically, um, you know, we, we didn't necessarily have a, um, a census at this time. But, but what the world that Luke was giving us was that this kind of a census ordered by the emperor would have only been to serve one function, which was to up the taxes, to increase, um, you know, they wanted to know how much can we extract. How much more can we extract? And so Joseph and Mary having to travel down for a census was nothing but bad news. Um, not only was it inconvenient timing for her, uh, given her pregnancy, but, you know, it, it also was, um, you know, we know that at the end of this, we're all going to end up paying more taxes and we're already, you know, we're already heavily taxed. We're already struggling to save our land and to not fall into indentured, you know, situations and losing our, um, our freedoms. And we're already dealing with food insecurity and all these other things. And, and it was about to get worse. And, and I think that we missed that, that there was a huge economic backdrop to Luke's telling in particular. Um, so, I mean, that was something that I think also got my attention was, wow, we, we don't talk about the economics of Advent very often. Um, at least not in any way that I think is congruent with with what Luke was trying to show us. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, I mean, it doesn't really it connects and it doesn't really connect. That, but I'd like your your take on this. So, specifically within the Western Evangelical Church, specifically within American Church, I can't I can't speak for other countries because I'm not I don't live there. But I can speak 
specifically for the American evangelical church. I can see where we don't want to talk about this in this way, because if we then want to admit that we see this, what the Roman Empire is doing to not only the Jews, but the Palestinians in this area, right? Then we have to acknowledge what we have done in our own country towards marginalized people. And so if we can, if we can ignore this trauma that happens within the Jewish people as they're moving towards Advent, towards the, you know, towards this Messiah, that we end up, for all intents and purposes, assassinating, right? But then we have to. But then we'd have to acknowledge what we did to the indigenous people of this country. We'd have to acknowledge what we did to the to the Africans that we brought to this country. We'd have to acknowledge what we did to the basically the BIPOC community, right? So the the black indigenous people of color, and we don't want to acknowledge that. That's that's painful. So we yeah. white we we whitewash all of this into what we make now as this happy ending Christmas story of this this child is born in a manger and he is the savior of the world uh, through experiences that he's out of control of. This horrible empire kills him with the with the help of the Jewish people. And then we can then we can blame them and we can blame everyone around them, right? And but we but we don't have to acknowledge all all the all the suffering and trauma we have done. The ways in which we're complicit, even in things like the economic structure, you know, that, yes. you know, the, I benefit from the, I'm one of the ones who benefits from the economy being set up the way that it is. And to, right. to the degree that I almost don't even think about it, you know, I mean, I, and yet this text critiques, you know, the, the economics right. that benefit the few, but cause much duress and pain and loss for the many. And if you really listen to the economic markers, you think, wow, there would have to be a completely different way of understanding my econo- my participation in the economics of my, my world, you know, to center the vulnerable, like Joseph did. I mean, according to, to Matthew, Joseph, Joseph had some money coming back to him. He had some renewed, not only to regain his, his uh, reputation, but he had some money coming back to him when there was uh, assumption that Mary might have committed adultery, right? And so he was, you know, he he was up at night. What am I going to do? I want to put her away quietly. You know, he's a good, but but we we miss that by putting her away quietly. He was basically forgoing the public square where he could have cleared his name and got the financial, you know, money back. Got his money back, and he was willing to center the the most vulnerable person in the story, which would have been Mary. And was willing to forego all of the other stuff, the economics that were rightly his, to, 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 to center and protect her. Well, I just don't see a lot of people practicing their economics that way these days. No, that's for sure. If it's legally mine, I want it, you know? Yeah, it's my right. I'm entitled to it, right? Right. It's the same as I like to talk about the Jubilee text. Well, no. <laughs> the idea that it would be good news for the poor, but hard news for the, for the right. rest of us. No. I don't yeah. want to talk about that. You, you see, know? How, see how pissed off we get just about talking about forgiving a little bit of student debt. And, right. You know, and yeah, we, really. Yeah, yeah. We forget. That, could we go yeah. as far? Could we go as far as to say that Jesus would be raised in this in this community that knows this story? This isn't a story that would be hidden, right? That some people are going to think that he's an illegitimate son of somebody, right? Who's, according to some people, would be, no one, no one has claimed to be the father. Joseph, we know Joseph's not the father. So he sees what his, what his adopted father did. And this, how does this not affect the way he creates his, I don't want to say theology, but his, his basis of community and how he reaches out to certain people, right? Because we see this time and time again, where Jesus reaches out to very specific marginalized people. He pulls them into the gospel on purpose, as opposed to just reaching out to the status quo, which would be super easy to do, right? So, I mean, is it, is it too far to say that this is, you know, watching what his father did would be something that controlled and created this this idea of how to be a better, better Jew. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how to say right. better, a better but he, he, religious. He learned from his adopted father. 
Yeah. And that would be right. He learned something about belonging and that, that family and connection was who you chose to be your family, not just your bloodline. Or in his case, right, questionable bloodlines. I mean, we see in the Gospels where he was sometimes called Mary's son. Well, that was a slight. That was a way to say, we don't know who your daddy is. Nobody really knows for sure. Right. You come from Galilee. There's a lot of half-breeds up there. A lot of <laughs> True. Up there. Like, we do not know. Like, you know, and, and you know, there are a lot of thoughts that actually Joseph died uh, when Jesus was, you know, was young. Um, and so... You know, raised by a single mom and lots of questions swirling around his paternity. Uh, and so he would have grown up with that stigma. Plus just being, you know, from the Galilee with a Galilean accent uh, would not have, you know, yeah. endeared to a lot, you know, to all the good people. Um, so yeah, so here he was somebody who suffered stigma uh, and so knew how to create a space for people to belong and be accepted because uh, he knew what it was to not be. Right? Yeah. Well, and it's interesting to me too, then, because it's, 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 it's as, to me, it's as important the things that Jesus has said to have done as it is what the gospel writers decided to include. What still blows my mind is how we miss, how liberation theology seems for some to be fringe. I, I don't understand that. I will never understand that. How is the gospel anything other than liberation? And specifically, as John mentioned, I mean, Jesus going to very specifically marginalized groups and saying, okay, I know that women have been treated this way, but we won't do this. That, that we see that the, you know, the lepers can stand in for anybody we've deemed unclean. And we can say, no, we don't have those lines of demarcation anymore. Right? That the, that the, the Ethiopian unit can stand in for anybody who does not fall in line with, with, with mainstream gender identities or sexual identities and say, no, 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 you're not excluded from this anymore. And so how we can read all of that liberation text out or liberation theology out of the text is an exercise in missing the point that I don't know is, is, is matched maybe anywhere else. It's just lunacy, I think. Yeah. And I, that, again, that's where I'm really grateful to, to my husband and pulling me into a completely different space where I was allowed to, you know, I remember uh, when he and I were studying Jubilee texts together, he's a community development practitioner. So he's the guy who's out there doing it. What does Jubilee look like? Uh, so he's actually, we have a bank in, in Burundi with over 50,000 members. Uh, and the idea is for it to be an inroad for people who normally don't get in to the economy. And uh, so he's thinking, what, how do I enact Jubilee? What does that look like um, as a banker, you know, credentialed by the central bank in his country? Um, and I'm, I'm digging into the text. You know, and, and that's been that's been another thing that's provided some interesting tension for us because sometimes you can't do a one to one. You know, you can forgive a debt uh, according to Jubilee and the text, but if he were to to wipe out the debts, uh, he would have some problems with the central bank. And so, how do we right? So, what is the deeper meaning of Jubilee? How do we press in? I remember him telling me, you know, if, if this Jubilee text that then Jesus talks about in Luke four and and says it's going to happen today, he's like, man, if if Jesus would have said that here in Bujumbura, the capital city, my dad, like, and all of his friends who were the poorest of the poor, that would have been the best news possible. Somebody saying that your debts are going to be wiped out. Like, because there's no better news for poor people than all the debts that all of them had were going to be wiped out. And he says, that's what you in America don't get is, is how radical it was for Jesus to say that and how it would have been the best news possible for, you know, people in my country who, you know, lived on less than a buck a day and had lots of indebtedness. And it, so it started me on this trajectory of what eventually, you know, would take me into liberation theology because, wow, of course, of course, you know, debt relief and security and access to food, of course, this was part of what God wanted us to have, not you know, not only a soul in heaven, but, but a life um, on earth that was, you know, not just viable, but vibrant, you know? Right. And then bodily autonomy in the middle of all of that, right? So the right to sort of determine your own future. And I mean, all, a lot of those things, I think you're right. Um, and for so many of us in the West, one of the things that you just said a, a few minutes ago struck me is, is, you know, when it comes to economics, I don't even really think, you know, you, say you don't really think about that very often. And that to me is always sort of the hallmark of whatever privilege we have, right? Is I, is, is I don't have to spend nights wondering. 
I know, I know where my privilege lies. You know, I think being aware of privileges is, is as important as anything. So I don't, I talk to my friends who are LGBTQ or, you know, in that, in that world. And, you know, they will, they will say to me, well, you have the privilege to think about these topics or not. I don't have that privilege. I have to think about this every waking hour of the day because this is my life. And this is so the things that I, you know, I can, I can decide one day to really key in on those issues and I can talk about them heavily and then I can step away and talk about something else for a while. And so that, that, that notion of economic security for, for many of us in the States, um, is just not that we don't have economic insecurity, but I just think it's different. I'm not sure that we've experienced the sort of abject poverty that people in certain parts of the world have. Well, well where survival is the first thing. Right, you know, right. I think when we talk about vocation and what we want, it's like, well, first I want to survive. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's, let's yeah. first talk about how we are all going to survive physically and then we can talk about some of these other choices. That is kind of a, an interesting take back to the just the title of your book, The First Advent in Palestine, right? So there's, again within the Western evangelical churches, this, there's this whole idea that there's only one cultural group within this space, right? And that is the Jewish people, which isn't true. Uh, so how does, how does the Advent fit into liberation theology or, or anything like that when it comes to people who don't, that don't fit into that, that's, that narrow, very specific group of the Jewish faith, you know, because there's all these other people around there and this advent or this coming of this Messiah has to affect them too, even though they aren't part of what they would be considered, you know, the, the true faith. Right. And how does that, how does that, how does that mold? Right. So, I mean, I think what we see with, with the Maccabees is we saw the Jewish suffering, which most evangelical Christians and a lot of the Christian church in the West, totally is blind to uh, Jewish suffering even. I mean, we, we know about the Holocaust, but we don't even see in the text that Jewish suffering predated um, what happened in Germany, right? And for me, there was a, a moment where I realized, oh, there are other people in the land. I had grown up hearing about trips to the Holy Land and going to be with the Jewish people. And we had Messianic Jews come and give their testimonies, how they found Jesus. But I had never heard about Palestinian people until the, uh, I think it was the first intifada. So the like 87, you know, started to see more on the news um, about something in the Middle East. And so I picked up a book um, by Thomas Friedman um, so from Beirut to Jerusalem. I'm like, oh, good. I'm going to read this one book and I'll know everything I need to know about the Middle East. <laughs> <laughs> I've been reading for 30 years since. Yeah. You're still getting <laughs> but, there, right? <laughs> but it was the first time that I had actually realized there were other people in that land that had deep historical connection also. And of course, now I know it's even more complex. You have, you know, refugees from other countries. You have the Bedouins. You have, I mean, now I know there is such complexity about people who live in this space and call this home and have uh, deep roots here. Uh, and so I think my, my decision to write the book with Palestine in mind was in part because when I was there, so many of the custodians of these various sites are Palestinian Christians. And you recognize how deeply they cherish these stories, right? It's part of their their faith and their family. And their, And I, I just, I don't know, it felt to me like, how could I, having seen Jewish suffering in the, in the Maccabean period uh, and beyond, having now opened my eyes to see that Palestinians existed and to start paying attention to their stories in more modern times, how could I not write about God's arrival to this place without um, naming the people that are there. Some of them, you know, like I said, back in the text, some of them more modern, but all with this deep connection uh, to, to make sure that we see those who have been unseen to us um, in the hopes that by seeing them and, and sharing their stories that we will maybe care about justice for them. You know, we all know about what happened you know, to the Jews in Germany and, you know, the, uh, the Eastern Europe, 
Not so many people know about the stories of the Nakba, what has happened since 1948, when a lot of our Palestinian uh, brothers and sisters were pushed out of their, their homes to make space for the traumatized Jewish people who came, who survived the Holocaust, right? So there's right. this deep connect, intertwining. And so here we have two peoples with deep, again, here we are, trauma. Yeah. What happened, what happened for that commute, for the Jewish community? Deeply traumatic. What happened for the Palestinian community? Deeply traumatic. And so you have these two communities, and there are others, but let's say predominantly these two um, groups of people with deep trauma trying to figure out how to live in this space together and how, and it is hard. But, but I, I wanted to write in such a way that, that they were, we saw them both, um, in the hopes that when we hope and pray for peace and work for peace, we are embracing both those communities. Well, and this is kind of difficult to explain from uh, the Western evangelical point of view, because I don't want to diminish anybody's importance within that area. Right. But <laughs> Western evangelical church, specifically American, as we become pro, pro-Jerusalem, pro-Israel, mm-hmm. uh, we, we have completely covered the idea of these Palestinians. They're all, so we, we have to look them, at them as all Muslim. As all, you know, and this is in quotes for people who aren't watching this on video because there's no video, but uh, (laughs) that they're all terrorists, right? Regardless of as we literally push people out of their homes to make space for Israel, we are pushing out Palestinian Christians. We are killing Palestinian Christians in the name of recovering the homeland for Jerusalem and Israel. Um, and, and again, it, it's, it's problematic because I don't want to belittle the Muslims that are there, right? You don't want to say, um, they don't matter. And it, cause they absolutely do. They absolutely matter. But we have specifically within the Western, uh, mindset have just, we just live in a world where, where they're all Muslim and that gives us the right to push them out of the way. Well, at the very least, they're all Arab, in which case we can then push well, them all in the yeah. same category, right? But in, yeah. in, in an effort to sort of heal the Jewish diaspora, we've foisted a new one upon the Palestinians, haven't we? As they get ejected out of their homeland and scattered across the world and their cultures are forever altered and changed and sometimes in, in unrecoverable ways. That's the part that I want, you know, I would love to see us, us, us contend with a little bit more honestly and say, listen, all right, what, what has been done? I mean, obviously the Jewish diaspora began, <laughs> it, it predates the Holocaust. I mean, it's, it's been going yeah, well, on, right? Yeah, after the exile in Babylon, really, we start seeing right. the diaspora to, uh, start to happen. Right. And then, yeah, and we just see that sort of continuing on. Um, one of the things that I have, I don't think it's unique to, to any one people group. I think it's uniquely human, um, is that oftentimes when we are given the chance, um, when the roles may be reversed rather than be extenders of peace, we decide that we'll just perpetrate the same things in other people. Um, we see this all the time. And that's, that's one of those things I see that happening with, even when you talk about Jubilee texts, where you say there are two kinds of people, you know, it seems like there are those who went through this and by God, I'm going to make sure nobody else has to. And then there's the flip side of that where there are lots of other people who are like, man, I went through this. I paid my dues. You should have to as well. Why should... I paid my debt. Why do you get any kind of jubilee? So there's a, one to me is a gospel mindset. <laughs> one is the one is a liberation mindset that says, "By God, I suffered," but that doesn't mean everyone has to. And to the extent that the gospel is good news, it should be good news for everyone. So I love that you write this story from that perspective because I think that's in the best tradition of Scripture. Um, that's one of the things that I think differentiates Scripture from other kinds of writings is oftentimes. Um, we are given the point of view of the marginalized. And we are seeing the story from the perspective of those who who uh, generally are not heard from. So I love that you write from their from their perspective. I think that's a great move. For what but it is, you know, when you have, I, you have two, in one sense, I, I wondered, gee, have I bit off more than I can chew <laughs> to include, <laughs> to include the, the people and the place and, and politics of Palestine into the, you know, into the, the fabric of this book, but I, you know, but I still think it's, a, it's worth, tr- 
it's worth our attempt to name these things, to name the trauma communities. As a liberation theologian, I still think we have to name where the current um, imbalance in terms of justice and oppression, where it is. Um, you know, and that's, that's hard, but I think we do, you know, there, my friends who live in the West Bank are absolutely living under oppression. And and we have to name that. That has to be part of, right, a peace has to be able to say the oppression has to stop, even as we recognize that we're dealing with uh, pain on both sides of of the checkpoint. But it's it's hard. And yet, I think this is what we're invited into um, when we think about God's peace and how different it is from Caesar's. And of course, this is the Evan narratives are just the beginning, right? Um, They don't end very hopefully. Matthew in particular starts off with, you know, Joseph has a dream. In short order, there's a baby. And then there's, you know, they, they fly across the border as political refugees to Egypt. Um, you know, Herod had slaughters, not just in Bethlehem, but throughout the region, there's a slaughter, um, looking for, for Jesus. Um, you know, anybody who could usurp the throne from Herod. And then, um, when, even when the Holy Family gets to come back, it's too hot for them to go back to Bethlehem. Um, there's still a target on their back. And so they go up to Nazareth. Basically, they become internally displaced. Um, not that Galilee was a safe place either. It was also, um, a hotbed of, of resistance, et cetera. And so, you know, from Matthew's perspective, man, yeah, Jesus was born, but then like atrocities kept coming. And, uh, I think we don't often grapple with that in our Advent stories. We want to end with the manger and the star and the, this harmonized picture um, that never exi- really existed in the texts. Um, and Matthew leaves us in a much more dark place in terms of the reality of, like I said, the complexity of hope, the ways in which we really have to struggle uh, with these things. And of course, you know, we'll look at the whole trajectory of the life um, of Jesus to start to see where what hope is going to look like as it plays out. Uh, but man, these Advent texts, I think, should really trouble us and challenge us. Yeah, but that's something that we're, we're, we don't like, right? We don't we don't like discomfort. Certainly not inside of the church. We don't like it, and so, and especially at that time. So you know, it might be a good idea. I'm, I'm, I may do this in my own little church, and maybe we'll talk about Advent and you know some other times so we can go, hey, let's, I don't want to wreck your Christmas, but there's stuff going on here that we actually have to talk about. Um, there's some things in here that are deep, you know, and deserve to be acknowledged, you know. Exactly. And working through this text for two years, it was wonderful to work through it, not during the holiday season. Yeah. And I have recommended to a few of my friends, man, if you could read this, if you would be willing to read this book, not during Advent. Because I think it lands differently. Then we really look at what the gospel writers were saying, which is when God comes to these hemorrhaging terrains, to these troubled times, where what are the challenges on the ground? Uh, and that's not a that's not a holiday story. That's a anywhere you look in the world story. Um, and so, yes, I mean, man, I would love it if you t- you know took on that challenge and and that that was something that the, that these texts were explored at a different time to kind of unlock that connection with the magical, glowing Christmas and and to really say, well, no, what does it look like when God comes to this land? Yeah, I, I, for me, it was transformative. So I would wish that for others. Yeah, I mean, the the, the story is 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 compelling anyway. Um, but you're right, I think it can get overshadowed by the trappings of the season. And so then it's kind of like uh, Easter as well, you know. So you all of the trappings of the season get you begin to overshadow some of the some of the brutality and some of the stuff that, that, that is more complex that happens there. I, I I'm 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 still looking at, at the reviews on your on your page here and I don't wanna I don't wanna let it let it let it miss out or let us miss out on the fact that Walter Brueggemann has written you an amazing endorsement for this book. Who's one of my favorite. And that's where I got the cross and thing, John was because, uh, Brian McLaren, actually he intones, he, <laughs> he, he brings that up in his review. He says, uh, uh, that you write with the textual insight of Walter Brueggemann, the historical understanding of Borg and Crossan. You got the Borg and wow. the Crossan. Oh my, like, oh my God. Brian is very generous. Very he generous. Very- He's living up to his, that, that my favorite book that, of his that I, well, probably the first book of his I read was called The Generous Orthodoxy. Yes, and generosity that. is one of the hallmarks of Brian McLaren. We, we've had the pleasure yeah. of having him on the podcast too. And he's just a genuinely 
um, generous guy. But wow, if if you need a reason beyond the fact that John and I are telling you this is this is amazing, some heavy hitters have 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 weighed in on this book and said that it's it's, it's a necessary read. It's, it's something that we needed to have. And so for that, I'm man, I'm I'm intrigued as all heck. I, I, John and I have the book in our possession. We got it a little bit too late to review for this interview, so we've come at this from a complete. Um, we just haven't we just haven't had the 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 opportunity. My book is sitting on my nightstand at, at home. My wife sent me a picture and said, "You got a book." And so, as soon as I get home, I'm going to be like, "Woo!" Grab that book and well, hey. I can I I can I can add that. So I've read two chapters of the book, and uh, man, I'm impressed. You're a fast reader. I'm not going to say it's an easy read because uh, you you have to sit down and you have to pay attention to what you're reading. But it 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 reads, it flows, it um it you don't want to put it down. You really don't because you know there's there's books where there's like very specific breaks where you're like okay I can take a break here but I don't the way you write at least so far what I've read is it's it flows so easily that I, that I don't want to stop I just want to keep reading so I'm I am looking forward to finish I'll, I'll, as soon as we're done here I'm gonna I'm gonna read more <laughs> because hey, I'm really I'm really chapter, enjoying the book you're coming into chapter three that's gonna be a really interesting one <laughs> give us a teaser what's what's chapter three gonna what, gonna Going to tell us about chapter three is the the chapter about the girl from Galilee, Uh Mary, and Ah. understanding Mary from Galilee. Again, there's a lot of freight when you say that she's from that region. It was a restive region, always something going on in the Galilee. Whether it was an active military campaign, a, a rebellion, and people pushing back protests. I mean, there was always things going on in the Galilee and. And so if you remember ahead to Mimi, who was uh, for this young 16-year-old girl in the news a handful of years ago for slapping an Israeli soldier. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think that Mary actually is... Ahead to Mimi reminds me of what Mary might have been like. Mm. Formed in that region, formed in that space where you are resisting an occupying force. Every day is a battle. It, It shapes you. And I would imagine it shaped Mary. And so not meek and mild, but actually somebody who had some fight in her. Yeah. Her fight came out in her songs, right? It came out in her, but, but I think that came from a certain place that shaped her. Um, and I, I mean, there's some other things I, I think her story, um, you know, that region was also known for a lot of brutality, et cetera, but you'll have to read that part. Yeah. Um, changed my sense of Mary and it made me hear her song differently. And I, I think it's important, like Nat was saying, maybe to come at the Advent not during Christmas time because then you can then you can acknowledge the, the suffering, the oppression, the you know, being part of a marginalized group, right? Which we always we we, we think of Jesus as the head of this Christian behemoth that we, has become, right? And that we are the ones in power. Jesus, as a Jew under Roman Empire, was not in power. He was a marginalized, he was part of a marginalized, brutalized group of people. And as a Galilean, he was even further down because those who came from Judea, from the Jerusalem set, would have seen the Galileans as bad Jews. Yeah. He was even like, right, he was even further down. Yeah. So he was like backwater, hillbilly kind (laughs) of... Wrong side of the tracks, and Mary's like like Jenny from the block, right? She's like <laughs> like Mary from the gal. All right, yeah, I coined Mary a new phrase, John. Yeah. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> All right, she, Mary, John, write a song about that. Mary from the gal. Oh, okay. I'll work on that. Oh, maybe maybe don't do that. That's <laughs> <laughs> but you know I like that though because I do think that so much of if if nothing else, Kelly. Um, so many of our, um, so many of our, our images uh, have just become stale just through repetition. And if nothing else, I think we just need to upset those things and start seeing people less like we have. We, I think we have a tendency to see people like Mary as two dimensional characters who serve a purpose, right? She's there. She's there to move this. She's a plot device to move the story along versus a fully realized human being. It's something as simple as we, we just want to, we just want to ignore that. If it wasn't for Mary, that the first the first miracle that Jesus does doesn't happen, right? If it wasn't for Mary saying, "Well, do it anyway," basically, 
You know, he's like, it's not my time. It's not my time. I was like, yeah, but you're going to do it. Yeah, but I'm your mom, so get it done. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that speaks volumes to this woman that we've kind of marginalized and pushed to the side as like a, a like a not even like a main character in in this Advent story. Well, and, and inside the Catholic Church, she takes on a whole other persona, right? So, how does does your take on Mary does that does that jive with Catholic Orthodoxy, or, or is there room in there for some some movement on her? Uh, I think part of I really came at her from more of a historical, like uh, it was, it was really my under the research on what was happening on the ground in Galilee, what likely she would have been exposed to um, with soldiers and traumatized neighbors, et cetera, around her. There would have been some things that women would have been exposed. We know uh, from Josephus and others, women were exposed to. And I think seeing what was going on in the region helped me see that there were some other things that Mary most likely was exposed to. And there was a Catholic feminist theologian that wrote a book that was part of my kind of engaging an alternative reading about Mary. But but she was not, well, she was not loved for her book. Like for a long time, they didn't want to embrace Gustavo Gutierrez. And I think for, you know, they didn't want to embrace uh, Jane Schomburg either because her reading was revolutionary. But I actually think there's some deep merit to it, especially when you combine her thinking and scholarship with what was happening in the Galilee. And, you know, Mary probably, you know, experienced some things we in polite company don't like to talk about. Yeah, I would imagine. Um, but it makes her song all the more amazing because when she talks about those who have been humiliated, being lifted up, she most likely is talking in real time about herself. Mm. I myself have oh, been wow. humiliated yeah. in ways that, as I said, we don't often want to say in polite company. I, But it, it, it echoes a, a passage in Deuteronomy where I myself have been humiliated and I have been lifted up. And so... Yes, is it a prophetic song that she sings? Sure. But I actually think that what gets me excited is the realization that she was probably singing about what was happening to her in real time, that she was the first fruit of a God who would reverse her story. And that incarnation at the place of her deepest pain is where incarnation happened. Again, that pain was not something that scared God, but that God entered deeply into the most grievous, painful parts of our human story, um, that that is part of what is in the body of God now. I just, and I think Mary is the first fruit of that. And she says there'll be others, but I think she was thinking first and foremost about her own story. Yeah, I think you're, and I think you're right. I mean, most, my understanding of the prophetic anyway, is exactly what you just described. You know, I, I, I do believe that those prophetic utterances come from from real-time experiences as well as speaking about what might come to pass. But those, those, uh, I don't know, that, that, that's amazing. Um, the possibilities there then are endless, I think. Um, and one of the things I do appreciate about the Catholic Church, I'm, I'm not Catholic myself, but, and I was raised decidedly anti-Catholic because that's just, <laughs> just the way it was in the churches we were raised. We weren't even sure that y'all were saved. I mean, we we're pretty sure. We, I sent missionaries to predominantly Catholic countries when 90% of the population was Christian. Oh yeah, but they were the right kinds of Christians. And so we sent missionaries to South America, you know, because they had to evangelize the heathen papists. I mean, it it boggles the mind. But um, one of the things I do appreciate about Catholicism, one thing that I think if if, if you're not inside of that stream, um, it's easy to, it's easy to, it's easy to conceive of Catholicism as monolithic. And it's just not. I mean, there are there are the most diverse streams of people you can think of, from the most ultra progressive and liberal to obviously the most fundamentalist and you know conservative. Yes. So everything in between. As I was sort of investigating my own faith more, and I started being turned on to writers and authors, and I I kept being shocked how many of them were Catholic. Yes, you know, I was like, oh. Well, gosh, I guess I have to read Richard Rohr now. Okay, well, you know, I guess I have to. And I'm going back to you know to Thomas Merton, and I'm reading people like Capon who were Episcopal, and I'm reading people way outside of my tradition. And I I begin to appreciate, even within one stream of Christianity, the the complexity of that. So yes. 
that, and you that, know the same, the same is true for Islam, which again, absolutely, a lot of yeah, realize it's not one thing. They have their own sects and denominations, and oh, yeah. various reading, like the whole gamut that we see in in our, you know, in in Christianity. It, it, you know, when you talk to you know my Islamic friends, same thing. They have yeah. you know all different varieties, and yet we want to paint everybody with one yeah. you know easy stroke so we can more easily yeah, identify them. I have, I have a good friend that I work with, and she and she's Muslim, mm-hmm. and, she, and she said, "Well, I'm, I'm Sufi." I'm like I, I don't even know what that means right. because that's not that's not that's not in my that's not in my lexicon yeah. right that's not in my that's not in my knowledge I I just paint a very broad brush of everyone's Muslim mm-hmm. so they are all the same and so she's like well look it up yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm like okay uh, yeah okay but, I'll but there look are people <laughs> instead of that tradition even I, I'm thinking of a guy that I'm familiar with on Facebook named Safi Kaskas who is a great um, mediator. One who wants to—he's very much a um, a peace theologian inside of his own tradition. Um, very much sees Islam as a, as a religion of peace, and also fully affirms and embraces and loves his Christian and Jewish brothers and sisters. And so, to paint everybody inside of that faith in the same brush is just the the the, the biggest of travesties. I mean, it, it's just not even remotely fair. So, I I love that I love that that your book comes at that even embracing that part of the world and trying to see things through their, through their experience and through their eyes. I think that's amazing. So I cannot wait to dive deeper. If you, uh, I, we're going to have to, I think, come to a close here. We could talk all day, Kelly. Um, my goodness. <laughs> Utterly fascinating. I really, I'm, I'm not blowing smoke. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, yeah. I'm still just sort of riveted by the whole, everything you've talked about. I think it's amazing. And, but I want to leave enough meat on the bone that people want to go buy your book. So go buy the book, man, support, Support people like Kelly who are doing the work and who are putting in the time. Um, we'll link to all of your stuff in the show notes. Make sure that they have access to to all of your your other things as well. Yeah, I got Johnny. Everything? Any any parting wisdom before we we say goodbye? No, um, <laughs> I, I, I'm my tank is empty. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought all you're going to do is shake your head for the people at home who can't see you. They're <laughs> like, Johnny, you got anything? He's just shaking his head. Okay. He's going to go read chapter three. He is. He is. <laughs> yeah. He, I want he to. to show yes. yeah, he, he fails to mention he's on vacation right now, so he's got time. Although he spent most of yesterday splitting wood, I think, or which just yeah, sounds like work to me. Um, so <laughs> Yeah, I'll be heading back out to do more. All right. All right. Well, hey, Kelly, we appreciate you. Thank you for taking the time. I really yes, appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, yes. We'd love to uh, check back with you at some point and see if we can sure. see what, what else is going on in your world. But. Maybe we can talk about Advent when it's not, you know. Yes. <laughs> We're yes, not let's do, it. do it in the, you know, I don't know, in the spring. Some, some that, uh, I like to do, and like I said, I, 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 have, I have a little church that I pastor, and we like to two or three times a year go through books together, and this is one that I'm going to recommend highly that we go uh, through. And, and maybe, I'll re- maybe I'll reach out to you, and we can, sure. uh, we can chat about it. And, um, yeah, I think, that, I think that would be a, a welcome... Uh, a welcome little treat. So I appreciate that. Oh, I that. Cool wheel. Well, thank you guys too for reaching of out. Yeah, of course. We appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash this is not church, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.